Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners. Today's episode is an interview that I did with a listener who emailed me not too long ago saying that she thought she might want to come onto the show and talk about how she, how she had fallen in love with her therapist and also talk about her dissociative identity disorder. And I called her up and interviewed her. And at first, I didn't really know what I was getting into. And I thought, well, you know, this will just be a short little conversation about erotic transference and, dis- and DID and dissociation. But the conversation, I soon realized, was one of the most amazing interviews I've ever had on this podcast. Very similar to the John Moffat episode uh, a while back, the fella who had been sex trafficked as a young person. It's a very similar story. It spans a lot of years uh, with Liza here. She talks about dissociative identity disorder. She talks about how she discovered it, how what it, what it feels like. She talks about uh, her early childhood experiences and eventually finding someone who could actually help her, uh, a physician actually, who she basically molded into the therapist that she needed. It's a fantastic story. It's inspirational. It's surprising. And I want to share it with you. But before we get to it, I want to tell everyone that there is talk about sexual abuse and there is talk about difficulties. So if you're triggered by such things, then I'd just be really careful with that. Okay, so let's go to the interview. Hey, deserving listeners. Today's episode, I'm going to be talking with a special guest, Liza. She's going to be talking about dissociative identity disorder and also transference, countertransference issues. I'm excited to talk with her and find out her story. Welcome to the show, Liza. Thank you, Kurt. Thanks for having me. This is the Psychology in Saddle podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Liza, why don't you introduce yourself to podcast land? I am Liza. I'm just going to go by my first name right now. And I am in Ontario, mostly sing and dance right now. <laughs> I am a mom. So what did you want to share with the listeners today? Uh, I was interested in uh, talking about my experiences with a mental illness that we know as dissociative identity disorder. Yeah, so there's a lot of misunderstanding about DID. Uh, What are some of the misunderstandings that you find in society? So I've had experiences disclosing to clinicians and to disclosing to uh, various people I know and friends and family members. And the first thing that usually I get is that it's not real. Or that it's something that that it's somehow a problem with my attitude. Usually, there's some level of like, isn't it just like a role playing thing? Or or that that is actually not a true diagnosis. You know, it's they're going to take it out of the DSM five, and your therapist is basically a quack. And I get I get I, it tends to be very polarizing. I've had people tell me like, well, if you dissoci- if you switch here, then you can't stay. You know, you have to be yourself. Air quotes, right? I don't know. It's not that simple. It's not simple enough to say to me like, oh, don't switch or don't miss. Or, I don't know. It's interesting. A lot of misunderstandings. And then there's the fear factor. If I tell people that I have dissociative identity disorder, there's the idea that I'm going to be dangerous. I've also had issues where authority figures have considered uh, taking custody of my son because of my, but just, just by the diagnosis alone, not necessarily the actual reality. Lots of fun with those yeah, I'm really sorry you go through that. It's a absolutely real condition. And 
treated people with it before and and looked into all the research and found that um, it's it's absolutely something that seems to be available to humans as a way of coping with early traumas. And Mm -hmm. uh, certainly there are people who fake it, just like people fake all sorts of things. But that doesn't mean that it negates that it it actually is something that uh, people suffer from. What is it like to have different altars uh, emerge, different different parts of yourself emerge? I wasn't aware very well of what was happening or what that, what that looked like or what that was until the last couple of years. I've been able to become conscious of uh, different identities and different states that I'm in. So how I would describe, like, it can kind of feel a lot of different ways, but... but um, I can kind of tell if it would be, might be of interest for me to tell uh, how my therapist first saw my, my first identity. Cause I remember how that felt. Um, and it was a very like distinct process that I was conscious of and also in horror of it's kind of like watching an alien burst out of your chest. I think <laughs> at least psychically. <laughs> right, right. Um, so this actually relates to the, um, the transferences that I had to my doctor and it's kind of a long story about how that came about because there's not really um, sanction like long-term therapy available in where I live at all. Generally, I'm kind of this weird exception and it's because my doctor decided to bear the weights of, t- of continuing to see me <laughs> after kind of, you know, all else failed. So I had developed uh, a huge crush on him. I didn't really have an understanding of how um, of how that how that occurs in therapy. I, I had a vague notion of it, but I didn't understand it very well. And um, also, too, it played into how my relationships with men manifest. So I have had the me Liza, quote unquote, host or whatever. Um, I always find it very weird actually breaking it down and talking about it, but that's what it is, right? So I had me talking to my doctor and. I had all of a sudden these sort of voices, this voice start to say words in my head that were very, very weird and unusual and uncharacteristic uncharacteristic of me. And then it was almost like they were like trying to rip their way out of my body. These words, horrifying situation because I really respected my doctor and um, I had a very specific very specific view on how our relationship should look and what's proper to say and what's proper not to say. And sort of, I wasn't comfortable just kind of telling him what was really kind of going on inside of me. I started to, at that point say, I think I might have an altar. And I had suspected this for a long time and it's kind of feels, I don't even know how to describe it. It felt stressful in that moment. It was an insane amount of stress. Um, I felt pressure. My heart was racing Um, I was trying to repress this altar as hard as I could. Um, It was kind of like a battle inside of me because I did not want her to talk to him because she would be uh, crass and like kind of a prostitute towards him, like talk to him in like ways that are not, you know, acceptable to polite society. That was like horrifying to me. And I was actually did whatever I could to be honest with him because I was desperate for help. Um, And I just felt like, it's this or the buffalo jump. So <laughs> I'm going to try this. So I told him that I thought I had an altar. And he's like, well, what does she want to say to me? And I'm like, well, I don't want you to tell her. I don't want her to talk to you. 
it was obvious that if I was going to continue on with treatment, she was going to have to talk to him because I, I was aware of how the conflict in me about one altar and another altar, both wanting to be front at the same time. Then that was kind of gave me like an up close view of, I can't deny that this isn't this situation anymore. It felt extremely stressful and mortifying. And actually I had an experience with uh, amnesia just yesterday morning. That is, was, so it was kind of like I was going out to go sign a lease. I'm, I'm moving in a couple of weeks. Oh, I, I put my keys in my door to close the door. And then it was like I completely time jumped. And I was walking down the street with a different shirt on. And I didn't have my purse. I couldn't remember how I'd gotten there. It was just basically like, I, I, kind of like when you black out while you're drunk. And then you sort of arrive in the moment like, whoa, what happened, right? It was just like that. And that is actually relatively infrequent for me uh, now uh, at this time, but that was a bit startling and it it, it was very stressful because it, because I couldn't figure out where I'd left my purse and I thought I was worried somebody had attacked me. I had to figure out kind of retrace my steps and figure out what, how I had gotten there. And it was only a few minutes too, but it was just so, so startling. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds extremely startling and, and awful and, so the idea is, and let me, and so uh, let me know if this is accurate for you, that when we're quite young and we're going through mistreatment of some sort, we develop uh, this dissociative process. Some some dissociative processes we just sort of go to the back of our mind and and. Uh, become spacey, so to speak, to avoid what's happening to our bodies or to our uh, selves. For some people, though, they um, develop actual different alters, identities, and these uh, different alters or identities step forward and compartmentalize different aspects of life and exhibit different types of modes, shall we say, of, of behaving. And for you, is, is that accurate that you develop this in relation to mistreatment? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, and, and some of this has come to me more like the earlier childhood stuff, uh, came to me more recently, actually. Um, and I think there's a few circumstances that would sort of line up for me to, quote unquote, remember, which I don't actually remember what happened, but I have evidence from my alters that these things actually did transpire. And dealing with these, this alter and helping her deal with the things that had happened that she remembers has actually helped my nervous system tremendously. So I kind of have a, even though I feel disbelief myself, um, I feel like the process of accepting what she says to me has actually been extremely helpful in a lot of ways. But so um, I was sexually abused by my father, probably from around ages of two until he died, which was 2006. And I'm 35. So it was about 20, 20 years. And he was also physically violent and um, emotionally. And yeah, my mom was also emotionally distant and she she was physically and sexually abusive as well but but not to the degree that would kind of register with me um I kind of look at it now and go oh yeah that is also included in that spectrum 
but I did not count it at the time. I didn't also really understand my dad's behavior. As you can imagine, as I grew, I grew up, I was not really, I was the oldest of four of four kids and I was required to do a lot of um, help. I helped basically took care of my siblings since the age of six until probably 14 or 15. I was parented. I had a lot of parental duties that were not really, that, that contributed to that uh, lack of care that I received. So I was also like emotionally neglected. I was taken care of fairly physically well. Like I had food and clothes and um, I had to school and my house was reasonably tidy. And there was a level of functionality to my life that made it very hard to see what the abuse was really like on the surface. As I got older, I went into, I decided to go into martial arts as a way to try to help empower myself. I entered into that when I was about 14. I went competitive, so I trained like seven days a week, uh, four hours a day in Taekwondo. And I did a tournaments like every two weeks for a few years. And I did, um, my coach was kind of abusive, but he wasn't, it's kind of hard. Like my spec, my, 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 my metric for this stuff is kind of off. Like I don't have a, a great, so I think, oh, well, he wasn't that bad. And like re- in reality, he was sexually, it was sexual predator as well, but he just was very mild to me. He wasn't your brand of like vicious sexual predator, which I encountered uh, a, a few years later. Um, so I ended up going from that martial arts cult situation to another martial arts cult situation where I changed my affiliations. I went into um, another uh, martial art with a man who, um, and so this person who I do believe was like a sociopathic predator, sadistic person. He spent about four years of the grooming in the grooming process and then moved my mom and me and my siblings out to his farm. And uh, I lived on the farm and worked for him on his farm. Also did the martial arts, um, did all the training, which was uh, extensive um, and very, very abusive. Uh, I would say some of it was like ritualistic torture. And he also sexually abused me um, and trained me like a sex slave. Um, and he was a sadistic person. He liked to hurt people. And uh, particularly me, it seemed... <laughs> Liza, I'm so sorry. Uh, I don't know what to say. I, it's uh, incredible the um, fact that you survived. And um, I, I mean, does this story end well? Are you living a good life right now? Uh, I'm curious. Yeah, well, it's interesting to see how that story panned out, right? I mean, this was back about 15 years ago that that um, actually happened. And I, at the time, it's fascinating because... And it was happening. I didn't really have the wherewithal. Everybody around me in my circle of people that I talked to in my family, they were all saying that I was not using my resources because I was depressed. I was chronically depressed as a teenager and suicidal. And I mean, if you understand my history as a child and my parents abusing me, then that makes sense, right? But at the time, there was not this idea that depression was like, Maybe it's just because I was out in the country, but it was the idea, like, if you were, if you were depressed, you were lazy. For me to, like, lie on the couch or be sad was, like, you just have a bad attitude about life. Like, look at all the things you have, you know? That was kind of the attitude that was taught to me. Um, so I didn't 
really grasp that I was being abused at all um, because everyone seemed to sanction what was going on with me um, to some degree. This guy, the, the, the main guy, he, for some reason, got in his head that he wanted me to go to college. And I think that partly he wanted me to go to college because he wanted me to look for college girls for him. And yeah, I think that was half the reason he wanted me to go. Um, but while I was in college, um, I had, a, I had a, a, a period of time where I was acutely suicidal and I was very much close to actually ending my life. I didn't really tell anybody. I didn't really talk about it. I just kind of tried to like carry on. But there was a very nice teacher who said I didn't look right. And then she took me by the hand and took me up to the guidance office and they brought me into um, a crisis counselor, essentially. And first they brought me in to see a man, and I, I couldn't even, I, I just couldn't. I didn't even, he asked me what was wrong, and I'm like, I don't know. I just couldn't, I didn't, I couldn't know anything in front of this, this man, this poor man. Um, so they put me in with a female counselor who, who happened to be um, really skilled. And uh, she knew kind of how to not, how to develop um, rapport with me very, very carefully and to not, um, like tell me what to do or try to like interfere because she knew that I was in acute danger like all the time. And that if I knew, if I thought felt threatened that I would probably just never come back. So she was really good at like trying to build this. She, she did, I believe like relational therapy with me. She saw me like two times a week for the duration of college about two and a half years. She um, saved my life. Um, I was actually able to have kind of a, an idea that I could leave that situation from her, um, even though leaving was extremely dangerous and I really thought that I was going to die. I really thought he was going to kill me. Um, I just, at that point, decided that it's kind of okay. Like, well, you know, if I die, at least I won't have to live here anymore. And I didn't have any kids to, like, you know... <laughs> worry about <laughs> so I uh, I ended up leaving the farm with my mom um, I got injured somehow and then I couldn't work and then that was like well you're useless now like if you can't work you're useless somehow uh, my mom got it in her head to leave and we left and never looked back it was kind of a surreal experience because I, I really thought that he was going to, to murder me and bury me in the back 40 <laughs> Because they had like a, a body pit where they put, I lived on a farm, a, a veal farm, a beef farm. And there was like a body pit where, you know, they put the animals that died. And uh, I thought that that's where I was going to end up. Yeah. So we ended up, up uh, I, I ended up going to college again, went going to school for musical engineering. And then I got into, uh, I actually got into a relationship shortly after that and became a domestic person. I moved out to a small town in Ontario and um, I was basically a housewife for like 12 years, 10 years around there. And then I started therapy. I started therapy uh, two years ago. It would have been two years in August. And through the therapy, I was able to see that I had, was still in a very, very toxic, abusive relationship. And then I had to make a plan to leave that, which was basically much, even more, way more difficult for me to leave that relationship than to leave the farm because I had a son um, with this person. And in my heart, it had supposed to, it was supposed to have been different, 
than the situations I had encountered in the past. And there was such a level of similarity other than like actual physical violence. Like he didn't physically or sexually abuse me, but the emotional, the emotional abuse and the gaslighting and stuff like that was like, it was, it was, it was pretty bad. And um, when I, when I tried to leave or tried to leave in kind of a sensible way where, you know, you, you separate in the kind of normal fashion where I say, okay, yes, I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. And, and then, you know, people, it's still stressful, but it's not, you can leave and not have the level of stress that I had. I had to actually leave um, uh, without my, without his permission. And I had to kind of with my child. And then I had to go into a homeless shelter for a couple months. I finally got my own place. I would say like my life's is, is pretty good. Like, I mean, after I got out of that relationship, I then had my own space and was able to have my own home. And I have, I was able, I fought for partial custody of my son for 50% custody of my son, which is what I wanted and um, was able to have that. Things have calmed down with my, my ex partner and now we have a reasonably functional co-parenting uh, situation. So that's really positive. And I'm in the process of collecting, of, of becoming eligible for disability. So I may be able to have like a bit of a financial situation that's a little bit more stable. I mean, to me, it's like, it doesn't sound great, <laughs> I guess, you know, to, but to me, it sounds, it's good. It's very good. Like I, I'm, I feel like for the first time in my life, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm truly not a servant to anybody. So, I mean, I'm, I'm positive about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds fantastic to me. I, I, it sounds amazing that you are now in a life and I'm sure the listeners are agreeing with this, which is like the amount of abuse and mistreatment that you've been through. And now you're not having those bad experiences anymore. And, and, you know, you're free and you're on your own and, and you have your kid and you, are in therapy and um, you're healing and uh, you're no longer underneath someone else's thumb. I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very happy for you. That that's fantastic. Um, And I commend you for um, seeking treatment and doing what's best for you. That's fantastic. Thank you. So the dissociative identity disorder and the, you know, the, um, the development of alters and identities was due to very early traumas that you went through. Did the alters help you cope throughout the years? Oh, uh, I would say that the alters saved my life and allowed me to have um, a very high functioning skill set. Like I would develop skills based on what was required of me and it would be kind of lumped into an altar and whenever I would need those skills, they would, it would come out. If I didn't have the, the DID, I would not have been able to um, maintain um, any level of normalcy. How does it help exactly? Yes. I think this is where it gets into like understanding what the ID, where it actually comes from. It comes from, uh, in my opinion um, and experience, um, I think that with mine specifically, um, the thing that caused me to have DID as the presentation is because 
my relationship with my dad was so very polarized. So on one hand, I adored him and he was a great man. And he was this wonderful, charismatic, sweethearted um, person who would like save turtles, you know, on the roadside and like go on spontaneous camping adventures. And um, he was a, like just a charming storyteller and, and, a, and, a, and a, a truly like if, if you met him, you'd never know. Um, he was a, a good person, you know, you know, it, it always makes me think of Twin Peaks with the whole spirit um, possession. And uh, it was almost like he had another personality. I actually used to call the other personality Hyde. It was almost like a joke, but the reality of it was that um, when he was Hyde, he would um, do things that were just totally unrelatable to his other way of being. I remember him like chasing me with a broom. I don't remember kind of how that ended, but uh, I remember him like beating you with a belt and um, saying things that were like, these are the things I do remember. The altars develop often for people so that certain parts of the self are only subjected to those negative circumstances and events and behaviors from, from other people. And it saves the rest of the self from having to experience it. Is that something that happened for you? I would say yes. That's a good way of putting it. Um, my, and also too, like the skill and the, the skill of the altar. Like for example, I, Liza, might not be as tough as an altar. Or I might not be able to speak sort of, so my altars have different classes, might not speak with the right vernacular, you know, depending on the, the situation I'm in. Because it was really like reading double life or triple life. It was like reading a bunch of different lives at once. And having these altars allowed me to like go to band practice and like, you know, get A's in school and then have like a happy face when I went to babysit, right? And have some enjoyment of, you know, getting up in the morning. Um, not have to like, I mean, there was always sort of a, a dark shadow over me that I could never really grasp. And I also had a, yeah, and I had a very, very difficult time having any sort of sense of self-worth overall. But the altars definitely did that. They, they saved me from having to be, it's like keeping all those things separate so you can kind of enjoy the little bits of good things that happen and sort of gather life experiences that are sort of positive. And then if it's really hidden, which certain ones were, I didn't really find out about the really early childhood stuff until like last year. And that was kind of a, something that I didn't really want to find out about, to be honest. I felt... I, Liza, felt that it was not really relevant <laughs> uh, to know if that, those things were true or not, or to, I was always kind of going, well, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, or there has to be evidence, or there has to be like, you know, some real true memory of this happening. And then I could not, I think what it was though, is that I personally couldn't handle mixing those memories with my, the memories that I had of my dad being this good guy. And it was just a really, basically a mind fuck in that way. 
Yeah. So then as a adult, you still have, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the, these alters, these identities. And when you're triggered to have certain alters step forward because they were the ones who took care of angry people or, you know, this alter took care of um, situations where you had to give in to other people's desires or something. I don't know. Uh, I'm just speaking from other experiences. And as an adult now, you'll have a situation you're presented with and tell me if this is true for you is it will trigger a certain altar to step forward because it reminds you of a situation that you needed that altar to step forward when you were younger. But as an adult, you, Liza, could probably take it. Uh, you could probably handle it this time, but it's this automatic uh, response for this other altar to step forward. Does that happen to you? Yeah, there's an element. There's definitely an element of truth to that. And I would contest a little bit if I can handle it or not, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if, uh, if the altars step forward to help me with something, it's usually because I actually need help um, to some degree. And it sounds kind of like, it, it, it is kind of chaos in an adult world where I'm like, have to have this continuity. There's usually a reason that they're trying to help. And it's, I can't like, what, what, so what, what has come from, there's a lot of different camps from my experience of how to deal with and treat DID. And some of them I've heard basically reject the altars and say, well, we don't want to talk to altars. We only want to talk to the Liza and basically kind of push them away and ignore them. I have had the opposite experience in treatment with my doctor who doesn't do that. He kind of looks at them as pieces of the puzzle, looks at them from the perspective that the altars are there to serve. So how do we help them help me? Right. That's the, that's the consensus. And that's the way I treat it is it's really hard to, for people to get rid, so to speak of altars. Um, And for some people it's, and for many, it's probably impossible and the um, effort to uh, suppress that denies the strengths of those alters and identities. The effort generally is either to learn how to live with the condition, how to manage it better, how to communicate with other people, how to educate people around you, um, how to manage triggers and or how to integrate the, or at least have the alters communicate better with each other so that they don't interfere with each other. Like when you were leaving yesterday from your house, something triggered you and a different altar came forward. And for whatever reason, that altar doesn't communicate with Liza and doesn't say, by the way, I just, we just, you know, we just had to deal with a neighbor who was screaming at us and I protected you and your purse is back in your car, <laughs> you know, like, or, or some kind of bleeding of memories, you know, some kind of uh, a little bit of memory recall. In the past, when you were young, you know, two, three, four years old, it was necessary for that altar to be completely separate and to uh, protect the other altars from what happened during that moment. Uh, but as an adult, it's, it's fine the altar comes forward, but it's not fine that you don't remember anything that happened. Is that right? Yeah. I'm laughing because it's so incredibly like not fair. It's a real handicap 
it kind of makes my word have like a crack of unreliability. Most of the time, like largely most of the time, I don't have that issue. I, I amnesia, complete amnesia for me is a fairly rare situation. And I know why it happened yesterday. Um, I believe that it was had to do with me. I was going out to sign a lease. And I think that moving is difficult for a lot of my alters. They don't like moving. It's not rational. And it's actually where we're going is really good. We're going into a better place. But the idea of just change, it's like super scary. So I think it was a bit of a like temper tantrum when I was leaving the house to go sign the lease is what I think happened. And uh, <laughs> I just laugh because I'm just like, I was so frustrated, Kurt. It was just like, so frustrated. So uh, are you saying a, a an altar said, screw you, we're not doing this. I'm going to throw your purse in the woods and we're, we're just going to go for a walk down the street. I mean, <laughs> is that? That's basically what happened. I, I think, I think. Because there was no, like, I'm, I have a pretty good internal sense. Like, I can get, like, some good, I've got pretty decent internal communication now. Like, it's that much, much, much better um, than it was. Between, between the identities? Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily, like, resolved completely or that I'm even really close to that. But my functionality is usually pretty good. If I say I'm going to be somewhere, I can usually be there. You know, I'm, I'm a reliable parent. I think this was a, a child altar that was, this is the, I have one child altar that, that the amnesia is particularly bad with. And this is the one that my dad, um, I had the issue with my dad. And I think she is also prone to like throwing temper tantrums internally. And it will feel like someone's kicking me in the heart, which is like a really painful, weird experience. It's like having a haunted body. So for her, the, it sounds like you're saying that she might have developed early, early in your life, two, three years old, developed as a way of compartmentalizing the abuse you were going through so that the rest of this yourself didn't have to deal with it. This altar contains a lot of hurt and anger and is developmentally that of a very young person. And so when, you know, and you could see a three-year-old doing this, right? Like, we're going to move now. And the three-year-old says, no, I don't, I don't <laughs> no. want to, you know, I don't want to move. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and throwing a tantrum, totally normal. You just, okay, you know, it's hard for three-year-olds to move. They're, they're afraid. Um, and they might, you know, throw their toys around or they might say, uh, you know, I'm not, you know, and then if you actually had to or try ask, to hide your purse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and if you had to ask your three-year-old child, uh, to sign a lease, let's just say for whatever reason, leases need to be signed by three-year-olds, you could see them refusing to do it. Yeah. Um, or if you needed to get no your three-year-old... No matter how logical it is. Right. <laughs> if you needed to get your three-year-old to drive you to the lease office, uh, you could imagine a three-year-old would say no. Uh, so it all makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, it's just frustrating because I had, I had to look at it kind of with humor. Otherwise, I'll just like spin my wheels with rage. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of the things that I think you're, uh, you know, communicating and depicting pretty well is because dissociative identity disorder depicted in movies, TV, fiction, they often portray it like it's some kind of superpower or it's some kind of, um, you know, wonderful thing like, okay, now this altar is going to emerge and, you know, good luck with that one. And, it's, and for some people, 
they can, after lots of therapy, can kind of get there. But the but 95 plus percent of people suffering from any dissociative disorder, let alone dissociative identity disorder, are not happy about it. It doesn't feel good. It's painful. These these mechanisms kicked in because of some of the most extreme early abuse that anyone could go through. And it doesn't feel good. You know, it, it, there can be good aspects to it, but there are definitely demoralizing, frustrating moments like what you're talking about. And so people will say, Oh, someone's faking it. And, and I'm always like, have you talked to someone with a dissociative identity disorder? Because they are one, the first people to say, I wish I didn't have this. Uh, two, they're often the last people to even kind of recognize the signs because our society doesn't talk about it enough. There's a ton of shame around it. I mean, the, mm. most people yeah. who have it w- wouldn't come on a podcast and talk about it, which I commend you for. A, a number of our listeners uh, have dissociative identity disorder have told me, but most people wouldn't even email me about it because of the, just the deep shame around it. So, uh, you know, I think that you're portraying that that aspect of it pretty well. How often, how, how often do the alters come forward? Because it sounds like there's the you alter, the Liza person. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah. it sounds like these other alters, the way you're framing it, the other alters emerge. Because for some people, they don't really have necessarily a central altar. You know, they, they just have like us or a set of central altars. You know, they have like three or four central, but it sounds like you have like a central altar and these other ones are auxiliary identities. How often do the other ones uh, show up? Well, it's, it's interesting, um, the, the way that you frame that, because I think that um, I'm not as central as I like to think I am. You know, it sounds kind of like, <laughs> like it, it, I am the sort of host, the original personality per se, um, but because there was several uh, alters that occurred that, that were created when I was very young, like under the age of five, they're actually a much bigger part of me than I will sort of want to acknowledge or even understand. I would say that they emerge, particularly one other alter. There's another alter, um, me and another alter. She comes out quite a lot. And I am more of the, I do a lot of the business end of stuff. <laughs> And um, she's a little bit more like playtime. It, it's, it can't separate us that much because we're not as separated as we used to be. Like it used to be like very distinct. And now we tend to like, we can kind of run together a bit and like be co-conscious and tend to kind of almost do things together. And we don't have this inner war. There was often an inner war over who wanted to do what and the direction that this identity wanted to go into versus the identity direction that this identity wanted to go to. And I think both identities would think that they were like, right. Is, is she also Liza? She has a name. Her name is shadow. For shadow. Uh, she might like to, to, to have fun and you want to be responsible. Is that what you're saying? Well, no. Um, now it's not like, it's not, there's not as much, there's not a conflict with it. And I feel like, we kind of have a lot more 
rapport with each other, I guess. Well, um, what was the conflict in the past? I thought she was a disgusting whore. <laughs> oh. I thought she was, she was, she was like, she was the one that was, so the one I'm talking about is not the child. She's one that developed while I was on the farm. She was a sex and labor slave. Actually, she was the sex slave. The labor slave was actually another altar. And she was a kind of a geisha to these very sick, powerful people. Had kind of that, if you can't beat them, join them kind of attitude. It appeared as though this altar was like on board with all these things that were happening. But that was more because of the threat of death, right? But she became very, very good at... She was very, very tough, a very tough, very strong person. And I have a lot of admiration for her now. I used to be repulsed by her because I think of the different sensibilities. Like she developed different sensibilities than me. And I, yeah, I used to just be ashamed of her and think she was terrible. But I understand now that she developed that way because she had to. And she was very kind of good at charming and tricking these people. And so that she didn't get as bad of treatment as she would have maybe if she hadn't been able to uh, please them. Yeah, that makes sense. And also to, as you say, if you can't beat them, join them, convince the self that, well, I want this. This is, this is what I yeah. want to be doing. And because that's another way that people will cope with abuse is to just say, well, the abuse is going to happen anyway. So I can either experience the abuse and decide I don't want this to happen, or I can experience the abuse and convince myself that I like this sort of thing. Uh, and uh, because you're trapped, right? You're just like, well, <laughs> yeah. you know, one, one situation is better than the other, even though both situations are awful. Uh, so developing an altar that actually convinces herself that, yeah, this, I, I, I'm the same way. I like, I like doing these things. Um, it, you know, it's a lesser of two evils, right? Yeah. It's, it's sort of like a padding to the, the horror of what's actually happening. And, uh, there's a kind of, it makes me think of like, almost like narcissism where there's that idea of like building this grandiose kind of like, well, I'm like a gangster now. You know, like I'm just going to be a gangster and be in the gangster lifestyle and kind of like be badass and tough. And that was kind of her way of like surviving and coping and to be kind of like abrasive. It was actually really hard for me to deal with her talking to my doctor because I knew how rough she would, how rough she could be. Was she the um, one that wanted to come out that one time? Yeah. Yeah. She was trying to like, and, 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 realistically she was trying to protect me um she was very much trying to protect me um i got triggered by him um because i have a theory as to why i got triggered by him so severely and it's neither it's hard to say because i don't know what's I, I don't know how all the details on his end i don't know exactly what he was feeling but i'm i have my theories um and i think he had um an attraction to me and she could tell that. And also, too, we were having to be vulnerable with him with information that had a sexual nature to it as well. And so she kind of equated talking 
to a man about sex as dangerous. If you talk about that, then this door opens and then you need me because you can't really handle what's going to happen. So that there's like this basic reaction to this situation that I, it, it, I was, you know, yeah, it was a very weird and very frightening thing to happen to me because, because it was. <laughs> yeah. Do you think you're better off with dissociative identity disorder? Cause you seem like you're, uh, I mean, at least the way you're presenting yourself right now, you seem like a very balanced person. Uh, and I'm thinking about other people who I treat who, you know, most people who go through mistreatment don't develop dissociative identity disorder. They often have a lot of symptoms and a lot of issues. And and I'm not saying you don't because I don't know you that well, but I don't know. It just sort of popped in my head. Do you, do you think... You, are you happy you developed it to, to cope with the difficulties you went through in your life? Well, happy is not the right word. I'm grateful that my body and my nervous system were able to do something to rise to the occasion of my life. Because if I didn't, if this didn't happen, then I don't know. I might've committed suicide or I might've, my nervous system might have not been able to tolerate it. I am grateful for however my body has adapted to survive the situations. Um, it's a mixed bag. Um, and it's funny that you would, because I do have a lot of, I do have a lot of issues, but I, they're, they're greatly reduced uh, since I've been in therapy. My doctor's been very effective. So... I would say that there's a sort of a gra- there's I have come to a gratitude towards myself and I've come to a level of acceptance with it and to sort of see the positive side of it and to like have give myself credit for what I've been able to accomplish despite the odds. Yeah, I'll say I think you're an amazing success or heroic story if you will of someone who Thanks. has uh, survived so much mistreatment and so much um, injustice to um, survive, to build a good life, to have the compassion to yourself and to others to share this story um, is, is extremely inspirational. So I wanted to ask you, because I'm, I'm guessing the listeners might be wondering about this and I'm wondering about it is you have a a common story of someone who had the misfortune of being born into a family with abusive parents. And once you emerged from that, somehow you had other experiences that were equally, perhaps if not more abusive and to have a father like your father, to have a martial arts instructor, especially like the second one, is extremely rare. And yet you experienced your father, you experienced your first martial arts instructor who uh, you said was on some level a predator. And then the second martial arts he definitely instructor. definitely was. I just didn't understand it. Okay. And then I didn't the, count him because it wasn't, yeah, anyway. Because <laughs> it didn't register because it was 
normal to you, normalized to you by your father. Yeah. Um, but then your second martial arts instructor is like some kind of uh, Charles Manson <laughs> so sort of character. Jeffrey Dahmer was more what I'd think. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Some kind of just extremely disturbing individual. And then your partner uh, was abusive too. What's your, I mean, I have my own theory about this sort of thing and the, <laughs> uh, and I could speculate, but what's your take on that? I'm sure it's probably similar to yours, Kurt. Basically, what I learned in early childhood then became a pattern. And let me, let me just back this up here and give a factual, intelligent answer. Because it's not like I haven't thought about this. Because this has been a key element in my therapy, um, understanding my patterns with men specifically at this point and understanding um, what I learned as an early, as a child and then how that played out and how, so basically what happened was my father kind of set me up for, um, so sexual predators from my experience, they don't go for the, they're like wolves. They don't really, they don't go for the healthy animals really. They go for like, um, they have like a process of weeding out and grooming the um, the weak, injured birds or animals, <laughs> packs or people. Um, and then depending on their style of uh, abuse or whatever their perversion is, um, then once they have that, their prey, their target, developing a relationship with this target that produces the things that they want to produce. So for example my coach started off by making friends with my mom. Um, he found out that we were at the same studio as the first, at first we all started at the same studio and this, how I, how I met the second guy was through the first studio. He um, was a parent there. He had his two kids in the class and then he started to create a sort of a training group with other people. And then he became the leader of this other training group. And then eventually it branched off and became like its own club. And he had built a relationship with my mom who did not have danger signals. She did not, she had grown up um, on a farm in rural Manitoba and had been sexually abused by an uncle for like 13 years or something like that. She'd been mistreated by her parents and they were raging alcoholics and so she didn't really have a point of reference for what's acceptable and not acceptable behavior. Um, I think she could have pointed it out on the surface had you asked her and said, is this okay? Is this not okay? But when it came down to making the decision and what she was attracted to, um, she ended up being attracted to predators. Oddly enough, she was very conscious of not wanting me to be sexually abused. She was very conscious of that. She tried to educate me about it and tried to, she would actually, her and my dad would actually do like volunteer community educationals on sexual abuse, weirdly enough, and try to like promote awareness to prevent it. But it was a big fail. And then my dad also was sexually abused as a child as well. And then as a teenager as well, and physically abused. They didn't even talk about the physical abuse. It didn't even count. I'm curious, does your mom know that you're in therapy and that you've began the recovery process? Well, yes, now. 
Um, I didn't really tell her about my mental health diagnosis and my therapy and me even splitting up from my ex um, until like very recently. Um, just because she, I found that her attitude towards um, her attitude towards um, me being vulnerable was not a very positive one. So if I were to admit, say, Hey, I got this diagnosis. Some of the backlash in my family was that I was giving up by saying that I, by going to therapy, by getting a diagnosis, they suggested that I, that it was a bad move on my part because I was basically submitting to failure. I was failing. Um, <laughs> like the, that if I just, if I just tried hard enough, I can just figure it out. And, you know, I just, I, I'd really tried hard to figure it out and it just yeah, wasn't working. It's such an odd <laughs> way of looking at things. And as a therapist myself for so many years, uh, obviously I don't see it like that. And, uh, but so I have to, but I know that so many people think that way. And so I have to just remember that, but it, yeah, it's so bizarre. It's like, it's like people saying that the sun doesn't rise in the morning. You know, it, it, it's such a weird reality to live in. Like, how is it giving up to want to talk about your feelings? <laughs> you know, how, how is it like, it, what, what could you possibly do on your own that would help one recover from such a complicated condition? Well, I think there's a lot one can do on one's own, but I think that it's basically, you cannot do it in isolation. And it just, the, 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 I mean, I was the queen of self-help. Like I read, I've been reading self-help books since like, I don't know, 1996. And like trying to figure out how to empower myself using anything from witchcraft to like NLP and hypnosis and cold showers and freaking journaling. I mean, I would try anything. And then I ended up, I ended up in the ER uh, over and over again for heart issues my heart would race out of control and they wouldn't know why. Um, I was sent to a cardiologist who assessed me and then said, basically, there's nothing wrong with you. You have maybe like a tiny iron deficiency, but it's not even clinical. It's not even a clinical iron deficiency. It's like a subclinical. And, um, and they, so then I eventually kept going back to the hospital over and over again. Eventually, I was referred to a doctor, my doctor, actually, my current doctor, the one that's treating me right now. I was referred to him because he, so in, I'm in a small town um, and there's not a lot of doctors. I was really, so I was just basically wanting to get clear, the clearance for my heart so I could get insurance. So I, need, I was trying to get insurance at the time and I was like, okay, I need a bill of, clean bill of health so that, you know, the insurance company knows that there's nothing wrong with my heart, right? So I did the, all the tests. I went to see my doctor to have my tests re read. And it was very, it was not, so when, sorry, I'm getting a little, I'm just thinking about this. Um, so he basically identified that my issues were, so, were psychosomatic or they were, they were somatic. They were generated by psychiatric issues and not by, um, a mechanical issue with my heart. 
and he kind of did a thing. He kind of did a brave, to me, it was a brave thing. I don't know if, it, um, if he thinks so, <laughs> I think, so. um, but he, he self-referred. He said that he would take me on as a mental health, um, client. Um, and what sort of physician is he? Well, he has kind of a weird background. He started off in child psychiatry and then went into, um, emergency medicine and he was actually head of the part of our head of our regional hospital for about 15 years. And then his semi-retirement gig has been taking on cardiology cases with this other cardiologist who's actually the surgeon and he kind of assists him and takes on non mechanical cases. He also is a member of a, the board, a medical board in uh, Ontario that where physicians treat patients with psychotherapy. Well, I mean, you sounds like a fantastic clinician, so I'm I'm really happy for you in in that way, and that that's that's great, and it sounds like he knows what he's doing. Uh, just another. Su- I don't side think note. he would agree with you, but <laughs> sorry. He wouldn't agree with what would you? What well, would you I I'm I'm just teasing. I'm kind of teasing because that's been kind of a a struggle. Um, my therapy wasn't, I think, undertaken by him having this idea that he was going to have to take me on as a long-term client. I think he thought because I was so motivated and so high functioning that I would be a simple client. Oh. <laughs> and then I turned into a really bitchy case. <laughs> what do you mean bitchy? I, I say that just, just, uh, just because I, um, basically he tried to use various brief therapies with me like hypnosis and um some cbt stuff and 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 a lot of my focus with him when i first started was not actually didn't have any didn't what i didn't think had much to do with psychotherapy i didn't really disclose any i didn't disclose my traumas in detail i kind of just talked about my present issues a lot and tried to like figure out very practically how to get back to work essentially was what I was trying to do. So he would, he even tried acupuncture <laughs> to like, cause he also had a background in some in acupuncture and Chinese medicine and was kind of baffled by why nothing was helping me. And he he would express that frequently as in like, I don't know how I'm helping you. I don't know what to do with this. Um, I kept sort of telling him like the thing that I noticed when I was that I just liked going there. I just loved going there and I didn't really care about how I did. I didn't care. Yeah. You know, what's sort of interesting about your story is inadvertently your physician is experiencing something similar to what Sigmund Freud experienced when he first started out. Cause he started out similarly, uh, you know, obviously before psychotherapy was invented. And so uh, through various different ways of actually working collaboratively with his first, one of his very first patients, Anna O, him and Joseph Breuer, um, this is maybe too much history, but they- No, I'm very familiar with their cases. Yeah. So the the patient, Anna O, or um, I can't remember her full name, uh, Bertha Pappenheim. Yeah, Pappenheim. She uh, helped Freud and Breuer develop 
their notions of psychotherapy, you know, she would say it, it helps me to, I can't remember the, maybe you remember the phrase, but she called it like cleaning the attic or something. Chimney or, sweeping. Chimney sweeping. Chimney sweeping. Which was she to um, talk about her life. And she, so she, she socialized and trained Freud and Breuer to, <laughs> to, to listen to her and to, to, to spend time with her and to not try all these uh, treatments from a medical perspective. Um, and she got better. And, and Freud and, and Breuer observed this and was like, huh, so wait a second listening to people helps them what? that's that's so strange that's strange <laughs> yeah so you're you're his anna o uh, you have no idea how yeah i i am basically and it's funny because i've actually written poetry about that specific correlation because i do have that full-on erotic transference i'm totally in love with him to a painful degree to a degree that's uncomfortable and, uh, and, um, I needed, I, we needed an, we needed an outside psychiatrist to come in and assist us with this issue. Um, because it was really painful and, uh, neither, I, I don't know about his end. I don't, he didn't really tell me whether he, but, but, but he, his behavior was that he didn't give up on me. He always kept trying. Um, I don't know what his personal want was, <laughs> Well, I suspect he got into being a medical professional and a child psychiatrist because he cares about other human beings and yeah. wants to help. And so I, I suspect that's why. So, right. Anna O. Uh, Pappenheim, she fell in love with Joseph Breuer, who was Breuer, Sigmund yeah. Freud's um, mentor. And the two of them, and Breuer, uh, from the accounts, stayed professional in terms of the the times now he spent i think 20 hours a week with her (laughs) or something and and did a lot of home visits and yeah i could live with that (laughs) yeah and would spend time you know sitting at her bedside and and she fell in love with him and uh, developed a somewhat delusion that she was actually pregnant with his baby. Yeah. I remember that. And actually that didn't happen to me. (laughs) Yeah. And actually had uh, labor, you know, sort of a a psychogenic labor, so to speak. And, and um, uh, it, it was so stressful to Breyer because he didn't have 120 years of psychotherapy literature to read that it broke him and he decided that he didn't want to do this sort of thing anymore. And, uh, cause his wife actually, it's a long story, but essentially, and yeah, I know this story quite well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for the listeners, anyway, Joseph Breuer's wife was so disturbed by what was happening that she said, look, you know, whatever you're doing with this patient has got to stop. It's, it's ridiculous. And Breuer was also very stressed out and losing sleep and having a lot of issues himself. And, and he, he said, yeah, I'm just going to go back to regular medicine or whatever he decided to do after that. But Sigmund Freud observed this whole thing being Breuer's mentor and, and was, had a good enough distance that he was protected from all that. Um, 
countertransference and transference and and it was the basis for my entire field of of yeah. listening to people and understanding that people have unconscious minds that can create conditions such as dissociative identity disorder or depression or um, PTSD or whatever. And um, so uh, it's just interesting. (laughs) Have you talked with him about this story? So, okay. I had, I'm like a research person, right? So I had been trying to find information about erotic transferences and countertransferences and um, I, that's how I came across your podcast, actually. Yeah, I was looking up information on erotic transferences and countertransferences. And I found out about Anna O oh and Breuer and uh, also Young and Sabina and all these things, right? I think during the time when I was doing this research, I had talked, I did talk to him about what was going on. I was fairly transparent with him. And I, he actually gave me the book, when when we Nietzsche wept to read, have you read it? No, I've seen the movie by Irvin Yalom. Yeah, it's a pretty funny. Quir- I find the movie funny and quirky. <laughs> yeah. um, it doesn't quite get the therapy aspect of it very as deep as the um, as the book does, and it was really kind of interesting to. I, I felt a little bit like it was kind of a weird move of his to give that to me because he later on, it took me a while to be able to discuss it with him after I um, read it because it was kind of very, it poked into a very sensitive spot. Um, And it focuses on the clinician's feelings for the patient, which kind of freaked me out a bit um, because I was wondering like, what do you want me to gain from this book? Right. So he kind of gave this book to me and then we haven't really had a realistic or reasonable discussion about this since. I think, uh, I wonder sometimes if he regrets giving it to me or just hopes it will go away. <laughs> but, um, so we're aware of that situation and the parallels between us. And I did kind of like, sorry, go on. So, right. The idea goes, and I'm sure if you've listened to me talk about this in the past, uh, the you, you you know this the most common uh, reason for clients to have intense romantic and or sexual feelings towards their therapist is due to the fact that when some of us are being raised we're not loved enough and mistreated we're or also mistreated and when we come across someone who actually cares and listens and seems to be stable and secure and not a danger, all of a sudden, like every uh, feeling comes pouring out because we finally have someone that we can depend on. And it's a healthy thing for that, for that to happen. Right. It's like, well, uh, I've been waiting my whole life for this person. So I, I might as well get my needs met while I'm with them. It's, it's actually a very healthy input uh, impulse. And a lot of the feelings are, uh, you know, uh, conducive to therapy uh, or it's, or let's say um, not distressing to the client anyway, where it's like, I like my therapist, my my therapist cares about me. I like going to therapy. I trust my therapist. Those kinds of feelings are not distressing to clients typically, but the feeling of 
being sexually attracted or romantically attracted to one's therapist can be very distressing and can cause distress because the uh, the um, no the clients typically in in good situations they can't have their needs and their desires satisfied and so um, is that what you're talking about when you're talking about the the pain yeah to a degree that I think there's that part um, that's definitely painful um, because you know it's like feeling it's I think the, at the most visceral base level it's almost like feeling like wow I found my soulmate but we can't be together <laughs> because of this situation you know and that's sort of how it feels to me but I know cognitive like I know from I mean I think that was a pretty important experience for me because I think I have a lot of theory about how it actually helped and affected me. So the other part of the pain of it that I found is also comes in my experience came later. And I found this sort of a lot of the intense erotic feelings or romantic feelings, they had a kind of padding as well. They were distressful, but they were also in a way had a kind of padding to them because the fear that I felt for him was unparalleled. Like I was absolutely terrified of him. Um, And I also had to talk. It also seemed as though talking to him about my issues was very helpful, but I wouldn't have wanted to talk to him if I didn't have those sort of urges, because I feel like whatever I was feeling was so repressed or whatever I was dealing with was so repressed that it had to be brought out in a non-cognitive kind of visceral way for it to get, it had to get below the surface in order to, for me to really be motivated to use this therapy. And uh, part of that, the pain of, um, of the transferences is kind of beyond romance and sex. Um, there's a part I, I kind of had this an experience with this recently um, where I, so my therapist is going away for a month. <laughs> um, tragedy. I, I know. <laughs> but uh, so I realized as he was going away for this month, um, I kind of started to understand, okay, I'm getting very distressed over this and it's multi-layered and why am I so distressed? Blah, blah, blah. It started to bring to the surface the true core burning loneliness in my deep heart, soul, whatever you want to call it, to have somebody love me the way that I love my own son. Kind of knowing that that's gone, that's lost. Um, My doctor gives me like the best, I think, gives me some top-notch, quality assistance and care and and he sure makes me feel cared about um and even loved uh to a degree without that using the actual words but it's almost like I can feel this wretched pain of knowing that I can never be his child I can never have kind of that that care that, that I struggle so hard to give to my son in a very, um, very conscious way, because I wasn't actually, it was very difficult for me to, I could see issues with my parenting coming from my past and my issues. And I, and I, and I felt that part of my 
part of the reason I tolerate therapy and I can have such a tolerance for all this is because it does help me with my, my son. It's improved my parenting like immensely. And I'm hoping to build a secure attachment with my son, at least on his end. And hopefully he won't have the internal torments that I have feeling alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's every, yeah, that's yes, every parent's uh, prime directive. And it sounds, hopefully. Like, <laughs> sounds like you're on your way. I mean, what I always tell people is it's not a matter of uh, having children that grow up to not have issues. It's, having children who grow up to have the least amount of issues as, uh, as possible given yeah. one's own issues. <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah respectively, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, a, a, every adult needs therapy because of the way their parents were. So uh, yeah. it's, it's just a matter of degree. Um, mm. That's so, what I like to make a joke about how um, I'm going to gauge my son's success in life based on his therapy bills in his thirties. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If it's basically, yeah, if it's five or seven years, then, then you did a good job. Did you um, okay? <laughs> uh, honestly, uh, I, I, I don't know. I think I said this on the podcast recently, but uh, I wrote a note to my colleague at the university because uh, she's, ha- she just had a baby and it was for her baby shower. And I said, um, something like we're supposed to write a kid. We're supposed to uh, write a card to the kid uh, that the kid would read sometimes later. And I say some, I I can't remember what I said, but something like, you know, may, may you experiencing, may you experience good enough parenting to the fact that you only need five years of therapy when you're an adult, (laughs) something like that. You know what I mean? And and I really do honestly believe that. Um, Most people just laugh at that, but I think it's true. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Keeps me in business. Um, right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So that feeling that, that pain of, uh, I've never been loved the way I love my son. And I really want my therapist to love me in that way. <laughs> and yet that's just not going to happen. That's a, that's grief. That's pain. Uh, there's just no, there's just no way around that. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like, it's it's rough. So let me ask you. I get this question quite a bit from people. I I don't know if it just happens a lot more than I knew, or I I've just become a lightning rod for these stories. But I recently got an email from someone, and I um, responded on the podcast about it, uh, and they were saying that they were falling in love with their therapist and she uh, felt like maybe he felt the same way and they're similar age and they have similar backgrounds. And she knew a little bit about his personal life to think that maybe they were a good match. And she said, um, you know, what I want to tell him and I, and I want to ask him out and I want to have our relationship as a, as a client therapist maybe end so we can date. Um, and she was asking me like, how do I ask him? How do I ask him to, uh, begin a romantic relationship with me? I mean, she, she <laughs> said it, she said it in a more sympathetic way to her side of the story. Yeah, um, yeah. and she said, and I've listened to your episodes on erotic counter-transference and, and erotic transference. And what I'm experiencing is not, and be, you know, big, bold letters, not transference. Um, and it's real. And this isn't just some kind of 
um, feeling that I'm having because of my my personal life uh, and or my childhood life. Um, this is real, and can't therapists and clients uh, occasionally actually be soulmates? And <laughs> and my response to that was, um, yeah, there there are actual cases of clients and therapists um, getting married and living the rest of their lives together, uh, but the the rate of that is is extremely low. I don't know the exact stats and I don't even know if anyone's even looked into it because you'd actually have to get therapists to admit that. But I would venture to say it's like less than 0.001% of the cases, uh, maybe even less than that, like one in a hundred thousand clients who fall in love with their therapist uh, end up having it go well for them in terms of um, when the client and therapist actually engage in a in a relationship outside of therapy. And the vast majority of time, the client is harmed. Um, even when uh, the therapist is trying to do well, even when the therapist, you know, so if the th- let's say the therapist actually does fall in love with the client and uh, breaks their boundaries and their ethics and the law in some cases and, and actually engages in a relationship, um, the vast, vast majority of time, and they have looked into this, uh, it ends up, disastrous for the client and often for the therapist as well. And she was, you know, sort of preempting that statement and saying, look, you know, this is real. How do I go about this? If you have seemed to graduate to this other level where you're just like, okay, I have this deep, deep, deep longing and I have these fantasies and I have this want, but I know that I, it's just not going to happen and I have to grieve that loss. How did you make that transition? I never really entertained the, so my therapist is 30 years older than me, right? And he has, so, and it's a small town. He has a family. He has a wife and two kids and they have, he has grandchildren, right? And also too, like I grew up uh, with people being, Um, having infidelity and having affairs and doing all kinds of bad things behind closed doors, um, deceptive things. Um, When I started to fall in love with him and started to have erotic feelings for him and my erotic feelings, my sexual responses to him were very extreme to the point that it was, it was torture sometimes physically because I um, would react so intensely and be not only reacting this way, but utterly humiliated by my reaction. And that was the only reason I think I was able to tolerate that was because I had a child and I really cared. I cared so much about getting better for my son that I just basically always thought to myself, well, you know, I'd like, you know, die for my son so I can go to therapy. And if it, you know, if it requires me going and being tormented by this, then I'm going to go and be tormented by this because I do see a tangible improvement in my parenting and a tangible improvement in my son's well-being. Um, and it's interesting because I would often gauge that by his dreams, or I gauge that I gauge that by his dreams. Um, and he used to have all nightmares, and recently he started to have really happy dreams and. <laughs> that was so good and especially when the worst part was is when the nightmares were about me <laughs> but um anyway so also too there was a very strong 
conflict in me about on one hand wanting to have him for myself um knowing that's not possible but because of my background i expected that he would try to use me in some way i just expected it um to me it was kind of like just a matter of course like of course he's gonna use me somehow like I'm, you know, a pretty attractive woman and because he couldn't give anything to me that was really super tangible, um, I kind of had this idea that, oh, well, you know, he's just kind of like, if I can just be really, you know, attractive and be kind of like an enjoyable person for him to be around, then he'll keep helping me with these other things that I need help with. It'll be like a trade, right? With money as well. But to me, it was like, I had this idea that I was a servant. That was what I was really good at. And that was what I would use to get what I needed. So he basically didn't treat me like a servant. And he was very careful to try to get me to, through a long painstaking process, to have a sense of value for myself. And that contributed to the, so from that it's kind of like you talk about the, we talk about the, the erotic and the, the transferences all in kind of an isolation, but to me, they were all kind of a part of this emergence of feeling like I had some value being able to kind of tolerate myself. Like I had uh, a very strong revulsion towards myself and anything that I would create or think or feel, I would just be disgusted by. And he kind of, his treatment and his care helped me move out of that. I, it was a very kind of gradual process of almost like a, almost like exposure therapy where I would just keep going back. I'm just a sucker for punishment. I just keep going back over and over and over again and just try again, every session to just muddle through some tiny piece. And I had an, and to watch him struggle through this, with me and tolerate me it was very moving to see I was utterly touched that he would try so hard from that like I had a great respect for him and would never actually want for him to any harm to come to him so as much as I would love for you know as much as my entire being feels like he's the guy I care a lot about him for real and would not want to have my own selfish wants put above his need to have a stable life and family. The feeling of like how to reconcile that feeling of grief and loss and how, how I've, how I'm dealing with it. Cause I, I'm not over it. Um, I look at it as the price I have to pay to have a healthy child also to um, kind of honoring the life process that I've had, where I've had to struggle through tremendous, tremendous suffering. And this is not that bad. It's not a great answer, I guess. Like, I don't know. It's not a neat, like, 10 tips or whatever to answer, but that's how it's worked for me. Like, I just have a pain tolerance. I just have a very high pain tolerance, and I feel like a sucker for punishment, I guess. Like, it's well, not that's a good not how answer. I it's would put a, it. I, I wouldn't put it. That's like a snarky you're answer. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> as you say, it's exposure therapy. You're exposing yourself to 
a situation that is quite anxiety provoking, but it is actually uh, safe. And through that exposure, you habituate to being in a relationship with someone and tolerating it and not running away um, or not um, engaging in some sort of self-destruction or sabotage with him. You're, you're, you're trusting you're, you're, and through that exposure, you're learning that. Um, and a part of the exposure ex- is exposure to yourself, exposure of yourself. To my and, different alters too. Yeah. And, and all those uh, in a safe environment where things are going well and, and it's fine. There's, there's no negative uh, actual consequence like being abused or mistreated or rejected or thrown away or hit or something. Uh, there's stress, but there's not there's not a um, any kind of destruction that happens through through the process. And as you're doing it, you uh, begin to trust and love yourself, and you begin to trust and love other people, and learn that you deserve to be cared about. And uh, you have to experience that. You know, someone can tell you you deserve to be loved, and that you're a good person, but um, it's hard to internalize that until you actually experience that over time. And and that's what you're experiencing is that is that corrective experience and and so you value that, and as you long for him, you say to yourself, "Well, I don't want to give that up and and you also are saying, "Well, I also care about him, and I don't want to destroy his life uh, and um, I, I i'm and it sounds like you're saying what's better for me is for me not to pursue him romantically or to try to get him to break boundaries. Although there's a part of me that wants to do that um, for good reasons and maybe some self-destructive reasons. Um, What's best for me is to um, think of the bigger picture here, which is that this therapy is actually helping me to heal. And um, if that means I have to endure this, this pain, then that's what it means. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's a good, that's a good way to put it. I'm curious, does your dad know that you're going through this? Oh, sorry, your, uh, dad, your, dad, your dad died. That's right. I forgot. 10 years. 10 years dead. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it sounds like harsh to say, I guess, but I wouldn't be able to, I think, confront. I wouldn't be able to, I think, admit what happened unless he was dead. Because of him being able to speak against you or him, his influence? I, over you me. know, it has to do with my love for him, really. Uh, and I feel like I was sort of raised to be a martyr for him the most. I think there was a part of me that found goodness in the sacrifices that I made for him. And that programming was kind of so entrenched that the kind of psychic distress that would have happened to me, I think, had he been alive and I had these feelings of feelings or had these images or these realizations, I think one of us would have committed suicide, to be honest. Um, just because there was that almost like, like, it, I didn't just have like a, he didn't just like abuse me. It was more like, um, I was his other spouse. And, uh, and he had like a romantic relationship with me and wanted to marry me. Um, and that kind of made this relationship 
just so many boundary violations, so many twisted things that like the positive parts of that, it was like, there was positive parts of him wanting to have this. Cause I felt special, right? I felt like this special, you know, I'm a special girl and blah, blah, blah. Right. And that was all like the things that kind of glued me together in a way. It's like, kind of reminds me of that podcast you had just done with the gentleman who was the, um, who was the trafficking survivor. Um, how he still felt positive feelings for the one of the men that had abused him and how he kind of still leans on that. Like that's kind of sort of what I was in, I think in a way like very deep with my dad that I was so in love with him in such a weird, inappropriate way. And then also he was abusing me and he was also terrorizing me. And there was so many things that, I don't think it could have come out while he was alive, but he's not. So, <laughs> um, do you believe in an afterlife? Well, you know, belief is kind of a funny word because whenever I say belief, I think, well, who knows? Right. I, I would say that I have a feeling there, there is, I have a feeling there's an afterlife. Um, I feel like I've had visitations from spirits and, things like that. Um, I don't know if anything like that is actually real, you know, like it's, how am I going to tell? <laughs> um, have you thought about where he is and whether afterlife? he can see you or anything? Yeah, it was interesting actually, to be perfectly frank. Um, I had a couple different spiritual visitations, what I felt were visitations from him. Um, one was right before I found out I was pregnant. Um, I was just, I didn't know he had abused me at that time. Um, and I was just missing him. And, uh, I also felt like I couldn't get my life to start. I felt suddenly confused and blah, blah, blah. And I had this dream about him where, um, he was looking me in the eyes and lifting me up and telling me that I could fly and that I was going to do well. And it was just kind of a beautiful moment because I was feeling so bad at the time. Um, and then the next day I found out that I was pregnant. So it kind of felt like this omen or something. And then um, later on, like maybe a year and a half ago, um, I was struggling to, I kind of had this idea, like I had the, this strong kinetic feeling that my dad had sexually abused me, but I didn't, have any actual memories and I didn't want to, I didn't want to make any melodramatic assumptions. Um, and so I was trying to like figure out, just trying to like, you know, ponder things and figure out what do I think? What do I believe? What do I, how do I go about find, finding this out? And I had a, I woke up in the middle of the night and I felt like there was a presence um, hovering over me <laughs> and I felt like it was my dad and I said, said to the presence, Oh dad, like, you know, in an affectionate way. And then I felt it struck my cheek, which was really interesting. And then he, um, and then I said, did you molest me to the spirit? And then the spirit ran away, uh, kind of like cold and just left. And that was kind of a, to me, kind of an answer. But, and I, I do feel like my dad's 
spirit. Um, I think he really wanted me to do well, despite um, despite uh, the things that happened and the choices that he made. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I can picture your, uh, you know, what happened in my mind, and it's such a complex reaction I have to that. You know, I don't know him, didn't know him, and I'm upset at him for being harmful to you. I feel bad for him for the harm he went through as a child. I can imagine the closeness and the uh, bond that you had with him. He was your father, and you did have a deep relationship. But I'm also upset at him. It's a complex feeling I'm having. It's uh, It's not a simple one. It's not a simple answer to that. And I actually have not um, told my family about the sexual abuse that he did. I've decided to hold that card for a little while because I don't want to, um, I just want to make sure that I'm stable enough to handle the repercussions because there's definitely going to be repercussions if I do that. Yeah. Because my dad was kind of a, he was kind of a, I would be basically disgracing his name. Sometimes I wonder about, whether it's a good idea for my siblings, because I know that some things happened with my sister that were very odd. Yeah. And so I debate over whether or not it's a good idea to tell her that so that she, because my sister suffers from uh, um, complex PTSD, at least that she's never been diagnosed with it, but she's gone to psychiatrists and, but if she got a diagnosis, she would have to have that then on her record and, and she's not willing to take on the stigma of having that. Is the second martial arts instructor still at large? I think so. Yeah. There is, I, ha, I keep entertaining this idea that I'm going to go and uh, I'm going to go back and like, I want to go through the system actually and uh, charge him with uh, trying to charge him. Because yeah. even if I fail at it, it's a historical crime. And in Canada, there's no statute of limitations, which is nice, on sex crimes. So I can go back and charge him for something that happened 15 years ago. And I have, I have witnessed him sexually assault and groom other girls. Um, so there's that. Um, I, it's not necessarily likely that I would actually succeed at charging him, but it would be a victory to me in the sense that he trained me to be silent and to never speak of this stuff. So the fact that I'm on this podcast talking about it is a universe away from where I was like 15 years ago. Um, I would have never even, I wouldn't even tell my friends, you know, what would, what happened to me. Cause I just believed, I literally, I didn't even just believe it was my fault. I knew it was my fault. It just was, was my fault, you know? Yeah. Um, that was how I was raised or groomed. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, I think he's at large still. I, I, I suspect he's probably still abusing other people. Um, I, he probably has escalated. I would be scared to estimate where he's escalated to cause he was a scary motherfucker. Um, yeah. and, uh, so that, that kind of haunts me a little bit. There's a part of me that's like, 
I should go to the police and try to like expose him because like God only knows what he's, you know, what, what I didn't see, you know, what went on behind the scenes I didn't see. Right. Yeah. I wish there was a way for victims in your situation to come forward without experiencing any of the negative consequences that <sighs> inevitably follow. Um, I wish there's got to be a way. I mean, we're, we're all interested in getting rid of these people or locking them up or something. We're all interested something. in in helping. Euthanasia. And, Jesus. Yeah, something. <laughs> and so so the, there's there's just got to be a way, you know, like an anonymous justice system or like a prosecutor who you know will never reveal who you actually are or something, you know, like – a, a just, yeah, a justice system where you can say, okay, I'm going to go to the prosecutor. I'm going to tell them my story and they're, um, they're going to take action and everything that I say, they'll repeat to other people, but the, but they'll always say I have an anonymous victim and you're just going to have to trust me <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, because we have a system that protects these victims from situations like that. Of course, there'd be problems with that because people could anonymously accuse people falsely. But it there's so many people in your shoes. The the vast oh, yeah. majority of people who experience that sort of thing never report it. And uh, it, it's just why aren't we trying to figure out some kind of answer to that? It, it it's very upsetting to me. Um, you know, primarily because. Uh, someone was abused before you who also oh, yeah. felt like they couldn't come forward. And if we had a different system, then he might've been, he might still be in prison and you would never have encountered him. Uh, he's, you know, he's a true monster. It sounds like it. So it's, it's very upsetting. Yeah. He's one of those ones where it's like, I've, I've had so much sort of so much sexual abuse that I kind of know I've kind of seen patterns in different people, like different kinds of predators. Like there's the ones I think of as the blundering type where they, they don't know they're hurting somebody and they just kind of in a moment, they're like opportunistic and they, you know, make a bad move because of they're confused or drunk or like, you know, uh, having like a, breakdown or something um and they're just desperately trying to get some need met and they're not even necessarily conscious of it being that way um like i don't even think my dad was a true sexual predator um i think he would just i just fulfilled something in his heart or in his being that he he felt like i gave him the most pleasure that he had ever felt so and I could be his and he could kind of keep me. I think that's kind of how he, he saw it. And I've seen people who are kind of like, they're, they're grooming predators, but they're not like, they're not really out to hurt. They're kind of more out to have the, like the experience they want to have. That's like sexual. It's more like a relationship type of thing. Um, like I had a guy who was this other guy's friend. So he, he used to kind of, uh, sort of set me up with his friends. And so he had one friend who was um, kind of really nice to me, actually. He he would take me on dates and, like, buy me stuff and, like, talk to me. And uh, when the, the sex he would have with me was pleasurable. And it was 
very, very confusing because it was like I was being like having a relationship, but I was also a servant. So I didn't really have a say, a real say. It's almost like being an escort, but you don't have a choice, like a slave escort. But they would say that I, they would argue that I had a choice, but I know that in the time, like my brain was just, didn't have that, didn't know those options. Um, and then there was, there's, then there's the, the, then there's the, the types of uh, the, I haven't named him, but uh, he's that, the bad one, the bad, the Jeffrey Dahmer guys that I think of him as. I don't know if he was murdering anybody, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, just because of his level of like sadistic sadism. Well, it's just, you know, it's, 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 it is, you know, if I come forward, I talked to the police actually in their district there. And they said that if I, uh, if I come, if they, if they want, if they launch an investigation into this historical crime, they said they would back me up a hundred percent and they would do their best to support me. Um, and they were surprisingly victim, like, sensitive they were surprisingly trauma informed i was very surprised because 15 years ago the police were not like that they they said though that they said if we do this you have to commit you have to commit to telling your story over and over and over again and you can't give up halfway because that's how they get away because you will break down and, you know, we could be years in court and it'll probably be public. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and the family that he came from, that he was tied into, they were like, they had like, they owned like steel plants and stuff like that. They were very, very, very wealthy. They were prominent members of the community. They had like multiple large farms with animals and they were, they were kingpins of the community. Um, and I was kind of like, there. I lived in a tin shack at one point with my mom on this guy's farm at the lowest point. It was like living in a little bunker, and I couldn't even sleep inside in the summertime because the mold was so bad. Um, but this guy, yeah, he's just just an animal. Like now, I would say you can't even call him an animal because it's, most animals are not that bad. <laughs> most animals are great. <laughs> evil I, I just can't imagine the depths of the pain and discomfort and aloneness that you've been through in your life and it it's I understand that you know you've sought self-help you've sought therapy you, you've recovered uh, to some extent you're still on your way and you found peace in, in your current life as, uh, as much as you can, as much as anyone can under the circumstances. And, uh, and yet, you know, I, it, it just is um, demoralizing on some level to learn about people that do this sort of thing to innocent people you know, it's one thing for your father to um, have an enmeshed relationship with you and depend on you in a certain emotional way, which has its own damage. But then, you know, 
to harm you. And then to uh, this other, you know, sadistic, evil person and the fact that he gets away with it and he got away with it for so long with you. I mean, I, I totally get the decision not to come forward. And it sounds like the police enforcement people were um, supportive, but honest with you about uh, we'll, you know, we'll help you. We'll do this, you know, uh, to the full extent of our abilities. We'll support you. We'll take care of you. But uh, we've been, or we've been through this before. We've heard other stories and we just need you to say that you understand what you're getting into um, because this is how it's going to work in the best of circumstances. And unless you're ready for that, then, you know, we can't move forward. Um, so, you know, so I get all that. Um, it just seems like we should just have some kind of, I don't know. I wish we just lived in a different world where people like this just didn't exist. It's awful. <laughs> I know. Right. I like it. That's a great existential question. Like why? Yeah. Why, why does this have to happen? Yeah. Right. That's been the the question for me. Yeah. I mean, if there's a God and there's a heaven, that's going to be one of the first questions I ask. You're like, Hey buddy, what's with the deal with that business? Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Omnipotence. Yeah. That and what's going on in my cat's head. I'm always curious about right? um, Yeah. Well, so at the end here, Liza, what was it like to talk about all this? Well, interesting. Interesting. I mean, I feel like I got so much more to say even, and I feel like we just touched on the surface of a lot of stuff, but I'm, I'm really grateful. I'm so grateful to um, be able to share this coherently in a way that could possibly help somebody. Yeah. I have no doubt that the listeners will benefit from this and appreciate your story to a great degree. Uh, you are, I guess, in a very similar way to that other interview that I did with the guy who had been sex trafficked, John. This is a new style. I mean, just sort of meta about this. This is a new style of podcast episode that I I don't know if I've ever done before, or at least not to my memory in 11 years. And I've had two right in the same period of time. And it's just amazing to be witness to uh, the, the two you know, you and John tell this story of just such extreme um, hardship uh, as, as, as a child. And then to hear the way you talk about it now it is so inspirational and heartwarming it because, you know, and, and I, I've been, I've been sending John all this positive feedback that people have been sending and, and he actually emailed me and he's like, so I, he's like, I, I have this genuine question and this isn't a flippant question. I, I'm genuinely surprised that anyone considers my story to be inspirational or even interesting <laughs> or something like that. Like I, he's like, I don't get it. You know, I, I went through this really difficult experience and um, I don't really understand why people are responding the way they do. I mean, I, I appreciate it, but it's just, it's just strange to me. I don't understand and I tried to explain it to him because I'm one of those people and, uh, but I still feel like he doesn't really get it. <laughs> and, 
and so I suspect people have a similar reaction to your story of just, you know, for some of the listeners, they've experienced very similar, if not, you know, um, almost identical experiences to you. Cause we have a lot of listeners and, and some people have had very similar backgrounds to you. So they, I'm guessing will be inspired by your strength and your candor and your self-compassion and your recovery and your dedication and your understanding. It's sort of a self-compassionate act for you to put up with your pain, if that makes any sense. Uh, you know, you're experiencing pain and we would say, well, self-compassion would be to, to not be in pain and to, to run away from therapy. But you have so much compassion to yourself that you say, no, I'm going to endure this pain. And you have so much compassion for your son. Yeah. And the, uh, that's, that alone is inspirational. I mean, all of us have experienced hardship. All of us have experienced difficulties. And all of us feel alone in that. And all of us feel ashamed and secretive and um, alone. And your story makes everyone not feel alone. <laughs> and your story makes everyone feel like, well, uh, you know, if she can do it, then I can do it. <laughs> if, if she can find goodness and trust and self-compassion and, and optimism, then surely I can. And she just makes it look so easy. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's uh, funny. <laughs> no, I'm just good at summing things up. <laughs> Well, not even that good. <laughs> well, and I get it, you know, that of course, you know, if anyway, I, I just, I just think that it's inspirational to, to see such strength. And, you know, we have certain heroic stories that we tell in our society of, you know, the soldier that saves 10 people or the fire person or the police officer or the, uh, I don't know, the activist or something, you know, we don't highlight stories like yours enough and there's so many people like you who have heroically endured and overcome and are making the world a better place one day at a time uh, and are ending the, the cycle and the chain of trauma. Your, your child will grow up, uh, like I said, you know, needing seven years of therapy instead of instead of a hundred. Thirty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and his children, if he has some, will grow up to need, you know, four and a half years of therapy. And, <laughs> and, and so that's a huge accomplishment that is absolutely making the world a better place. And I think that um, it's wonderful that, you know, you're, t you're sharing this with us and, um, and quite uh, enriching, I think. Well, thanks so much, Kurt. I'm honored to be here. I had been contemplating for several years, actually, to email you, but I never had the kind of stability that I have right now. And then finally, I just thought, well, now's the time. And it was right around the time when we put out um, that interview with John, and I got even more like thinking, oh, well, you know, that's a good idea. I mean, I could really kind of add to that conversation a bit. I'm I'm just basically honored to be here and I'm grateful that I hope that that would be the case that people would find some value in it. So and 
I have to say, I have to add that, you know, the therapists that endure and, you know, go through their humble jobs to try to help people like me are also in that heroic category, I think. Because uh, I don't think I could do it without, I couldn't do it without my doctor. I have to say, like, I wouldn't put myself in this idea that I can go into a vacuum and fix myself. He's been my wheelchair. <laughs> so listeners out there, if you want to contact Liza, email me, go to our website, fill out the contact us page and, and or email me directly at contact at psychologyinseattle.com and I will forward to Liza. And that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me, Liza, and thanks for joining me, listeners. And please, please take care of yourself and uh, tell your story to a caring, trusting therapist or someone else because (laughs) you deserve it. You really, really do. (laughs) 